0: All God's people said, thank you Matt, good to be back, good to be here, I'm glad you had a good hopefully Thanksgiving with your family and it's good to be here. I hope you'll come back tonight, I'm planning to preach a sermon that I think is not only relevant but prevalent for this church concerning Romans 12, 1 and 2 on how to know the will of God. You know, all that matters in life is the will of God. Nothing else matters. We say, well, what really matters is us glorifying Him, but His will is the place where that happens. Hope you have your Bible this morning. Let's look in Colossians chapter 1. And Paul ends his prayer in verses 12, 13, and 14 of chapter 1 with a word of praise. You know, usually you think about prayer, you start with praising the Lord, but he ends it with praise. But the petition that he prayed is in these particular verses, 9, 10, and 11. And if you're looking for a title of my sermon, I'm preaching on praying from the perspective of what you already have. Now, most of us think that prayer is, is totally, completely about asking. I would say to you, prayer is appropriating. Most of us pray not from a new covenant understanding. Now, you do realize in the upper room, in John 13 through 17, Jesus transitioned his disciples into a different kind of thinking. And that was he transitioned them from him being with them, to him being in them. That's why the emphasis in the epistles is not on following Jesus, but living from Jesus. And prayer changes if you understand the new covenant relationship. Now, before I read the text, listen to this. In all of Paul's prayer. remember, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. In all of his prayers, you never find him praying about people being sick or their physical needs. Now, you say, well, how about 2 Corinthians 12? He prayed about that thorn in the flesh. Well, I don't believe that was a physical need. Now, a lot of preachers believe it was. If you believe that it was, then that's the only place. The second thing, you never find him praying about financial needs. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray for people that are sick. James says you ought to pray for people that are sick. And Jesus, he took care of the sick. And I get sick, I want you to pray for me. (laughs) But most of the time, when we think about prayer, it's praying about the physical needs of people. That was not what occupied Paul's prayer life. Well, how did he pray? Would you stand with me for the reading of his word? Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11. I'd encourage you to go home and study a lot of Paul's prayers. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Philippians 1 is one of my favorites. And there's all of Paul's prayers scattered throughout all of the New Testament. But this one in particular I think is so, so helpful this morning. Look at verse number 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and here's his prayer, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. I want to ask a question Does that sound like anything you've prayed lately? Now, here's what most of you do you pray things that you heard somebody else pray. Not one time will you ever find Paul in any of his prayers asking God to help him. Not one time. I'd encourage you to find out how to pray from a perspective of praying, not asking, but appropriating what you already have. How many many of you have a debit card? Can you use it? If you've got some money in the bank, you can. And prayer is a debit card of appropriating what's already inside of you. Lord, thank you for your word today. Speak to us from it and change us by it. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You'll realize that when you study prayer and you study Paul's perspective of prayer, that Paul prayed from this new covenant understanding. He has really sounded the alarm for the church at Colossae. Why? Because the church at Colossae had gotten into legalism, antinomianism. Also, they had embraced some form of early Gnosticism. False teaching had started to invade this church, and he's telling them that they need to get and stay on course by realizing two things who they are in Christ, and who Christ is in them. Now, out of this prayer, there's about five things I want you to see, and if you listen pretty quick, I'll preach pretty fast. First of all, would you notice in his prayer that he prayed that they made, they, they would understand he prayed that they would have a perceptive life. In other words, life is about you having an antenna that is on the same frequency as the Lord. God has a plan for this particular local body. Now, most of the time when you hear a preacher preach, you think it's all about you individually. Well, this was about the church corporately. And he was praying that they might know the will of God. Now, the will of God was a subject that he has discussed already in his introduction in verse 1. He said he was an apostle, but it wasn't his idea. He was drafted. It was the will of God. He's also discussed the will of God in chapter 4, verse 12. Look what in chapter 4, verse 12, what he said. He said, Ephraim, you know, by the way, that's a fellow worker from Colossae that was there with Paul when he was at Rome in prison, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, also laboring fervently for you, Perfectly for you in prayer that you might be what? Perfect, that means mature, and complete in all the will of God. So Paul prayed that they would be perceptive concerning the will of God for their life. Now go back to verse 9. Let's just break it down a little bit. Notice, first of all, the significance of God's will as we think about a perceptive life. He says that you might be filled. Now, when he uses this word filled, that ought to get our attention. Same word concerning us being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. The same word in Colossians 3 with us being filled with the Word. Now, we all agree that we must be Spirit-filled. That means simply controlled by God from the inside out. So if we're to be controlled by God in the inner man by his Spirit, and we're to be full of the word. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. But the word and the spirit connect us to the will of God. Now, do you, really, do you know that God has a plan for your life? A plan for this church? I hate to disappoint you, but he planned it before you, you even were. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which were pre-planned, foreordained. So God's planned everything about you and about this fellowship. And you are to be controlled by that. The only thing that's to control you is God himself. And so there's the significance here of God's will. But then notice with me what I would call the sequence of God's will. I'll preach more about that tonight. Let me make this statement. You'll never know the will of God until you don't have one. God is not interested in you informing him about what you think. God's interested in changing the way you think. But notice then, notice the steps to his will. He said, I pray that you'll be filled with the will of God. And then he uses these terms, wisdom and understanding. Now, in the Greek, it reads this way, spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. I think John MacArthur hits the nail on the head right here, and here's what he says. He says, spiritual wisdom is the principles, precepts, promises, and paradoxes that God develops and catalogs in the library of your mind. In other words, the way that you know the will of God is you spend time in the Word and God enables you to establish biblical concepts, precepts, promises, and you have a biblical mind. Spiritual understanding is you applying that. So the will of God and the Word of God connect. I want to ask you a question. Has it been difficult for you these last few days spending time in the Word? It has been for me. You say, why? Because when we get together, family, you get out of your routine. And you find yourself not having your quiet time, You find yourself not spending the time that you need to with the Lord. You know, you're not gonna be full of Jesus and you're not gonna be in God's will if you're not in the Word. And so he's saying you ought to have a perceptive life. The second thing I want you to see in the text is that you're to have a pleasing life. He prays that you might have a pleasing life. Look at verse 10. That you might walk worthy. Of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now let's break that down. The word "worthy" in the Greek means to weigh as much as. That's what it means in the Greek. It means to weigh as much as. Now let me tell you how I used to preach. I've been preaching for fifty years. That doesn't mean anything. It just means I've been preaching a while. But I used to preach this way. Here's Jesus over here, and I'm trying to weigh as much as He is in holiness. I'm trying to weigh as much as He weighs in faithfulness. I'm trying to weigh as much as he weighs in long-suffering and gentleness and kindness. Well, I found out I couldn't weigh as much as he does. I found out the only one who has the perfect weight is him. And it was a great day for me when I discovered that I couldn't be like him. that he does a good job of being himself. In other words, the discovery is that the only person that can be like Jesus is Jesus. But Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has decided to occupy my body and to live his life in and through me without doing away with my individuality nor my personality. So I'm to weigh as much as he weighs So that means the only way that I can please God is by Jesus Christ living his life through me. Now, I hesitate using this illustration, but I'm going to use it because some of you are going to misunderstand it. But listen to this statement. Did Jesus live the Christian life or did the Father live his life through the Son and Jesus lived as a man and not as God? Why did Jesus say in John chapter 5, without the Father I could do nothing? Why did Jesus say the words that I speak and the works that I do are not mine but the Father's? Why did Jesus give us the impression that he didn't live the Christian life? Why did the father look down at his son several times and say, Hey, that's my boy. And I'm well pleased. Who did the father see when he looked at him? Himself. And so Jesus transitioned in the upper room. Without me, you can do. I'm the vine, you're the branch. As the Father was in me, so am I going to be in you. Now, this word pleasing, it's the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. When you find a Greek word that's only used one time, you you better stand up and, and, and look up and shut up and study. Now, this word pleasing here, how many of you know where your wife likes to eat? Raise your hand. Come on, you men. How many of you know where your wife likes to eat? You're not very smart if you're going anywhere else. <laughs> or this word pleasing in the Greek means that you do not ever question whether you should ever Go against his word that you've hid in your heart, his life that lives inside of you, and you better seek only and solely to please him. Not only it's a pleasing life, a perspective life, but thirdly, look at the text. It's a productive life. Being fruitful in every good work. Now, if you have not come to this point, you need to. You can't produce fruit. You can bear it, but you can't produce it. In fact, you don't have the power to blow the wings off a gnat. Or you don't have the power to manifest agape love. You don't have the ability to have the joy which is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, you can't produce any of that, but you can bear it. Now, he says here that you are to what in verse number 10? Being fruitful in every good work. Now, let's ask the question. What is the definition of a good work? Now, most of you think that means a good work that you do for God. You really don't understand Christianity if you think you can work for Him. That's religion. Christianity is God working through you. So you ask the question what is a good work? Now, this is hard for Baptists to say. Anything that's not a faith is. Anything that's not a faith is. Anything that's not of faith until everybody says it, I'm going to keep saying it. Anything that's not of faith is a sin. Let's everybody say that. Anything that's not of faith is So therefore, a good work is anything that you're not doing, anything that you're doing that's not of faith. Now let's define faith. Because this church is in a position right now, if you don't understand what faith is, then you're in trouble. Let me give you a biblical definition of faith. Faith is your response to what God initiates. Faith cometh by. So faith doesn't start with you. Faith is you being in a position whereby you have no agenda and you signed a blank sheet of paper And God initiates in your heart through biblical truth and the desires that He resurrects His will for not only this church but for you and individually and your family together corporately. A good work is a faith work. I pastored for twenty-five years. I pastored a church. uh, I started with thirty-five. I pastored 3,500. I attended so many committee meetings and get-togethers where basically we planned a mess and asked God to bless. (laughs) Have you found out? I mean, early in my life, I thought I needed a new car. I mean, every preacher that I knew had a new car. And I was making $135 a week. And I bought this Monte Carlo. And I never will forget, I said, Lord, I've not been able to, I'm not able to make the payments on this car. He said, I didn't tell you to buy that car. <laughs> I said, God, help me sell this car. He said, sell it yourself. You didn't ask me about it when you bought it. <laughs> if you found out that you reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, you reap later than you sow, You can't ask God to bless your mess. You can't plan and then say, now God, we're just going to do this and we believe this will be good. He prayed that they might have a pleasing life. He prayed that they might have a productive life. He prayed that they might have a perceptive life. But then fourthly, he prayed that they might have a progressive life. Notice at the end of verse 10, that they would increase in the knowledge of God, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will go together. The more you get to know God, the more you'll get to know his will. I'm a grace person. Now, what does that mean? I mean that the knowledge that you have is what God gives you. You're not smart enough to get out of the rain. I mean, just to be honest with you, spiritually, if you put our brains in a hummingbird, we'd fly backwards. (laughs) Well, the Bible teaches that God gives us the knowledge to be saved. Where does the Bible teach that? 1 John 5, 20. It says that you would know God and that God gave you the understanding to know him. In other words, if you're saved, God gave you the faith to be saved. Now, I didn't believe that God created. I don't believe uh, God will give you faith unless you're willing to believe. But once you're willing to believe and willing to repent, God gives you both the gift of believing and the gift of repenting. And you continue to believe and trust God and get to know him. Life is about knowing God. What's your knowledge of God? Do you know more about him today than you knew last week? Or have you created a God you're happy with? Or have you created a God that you could sing hands and get the warm fuzzies and think that you really know him. Lastly, and I'll close, but I'm not finished (laughs) because this point's the most important point. In order for you to pray correctly from a perspective of what you already have, you need to pray a perceptive light. That you'll get in on what God's planned. That you would have a pleasing life. You'd realize the only life that pleases him is his. That you'd have a productive life. That means the good work that you are a part of in life in participating with, God initiates. It's progressive. You get to know God better every day every week, every year. But then lastly, it's powerful. You ought to have a powerful life. Now, let me ask this question. What do you think is the greatest miracle of your life that you can explain? You say, I believe in miracles. I do too. I have one. And if you're born again, you are a miracle. That God reached down in a horrible pit in the mired clay, picked you up, washed you in red blood, made you white as snow, put his life inside of you, and you've been on a solid rock ever since. God did something for you and does something for you every day that you cannot do for yourself. But how would we explain that you have power, the power of God working in your life? Let's look at verse number 11. He uses all these different terms for power. Notice some of the ones he uses. He uses. Strengthen, underline that. Might. Glorious power. He uses four different words for power. And then he says, the evidence that the power of God's in your life is patience and long-suffering. But he doesn't stop there. Patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Now, let me break that down for you. Patience, that means the power of God in you enables you to endure with joy difficult circumstances. So, how do you respond? in circumstances. I was in a meeting this week. I went last Saturday to the Clemson-North Carolina game at Clemson and I drove last Saturday to a church where I preached a meeting at in Wadesboro, North Carolina. And on my way to Wadesboro, I hit something, blew out a tire. I'd have blessed your socks off. (laughs) I mean, that really will. You know, now, if you're charismatic, you probably would just jump up and down. To Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. I've, no, that's stupid. That's not, that's, not, that's not very smart. But if you walk in the spirit, you realize that God authors or allows everything that happens in your life. And that's why you give thanks in all things. And that means sometimes that you can weep and still have joy. What circumstances would you change right now that's robbing you of your joy? Oh, here's the last one. Now, this is where it really the rubber meets the highway. Notice that word long-suffering in verse 11. What's the evidence that your spirit-filled, controlled by the Word, and accepting things as the will of God, giving thanks in all things, embracing every situation in life with joyfulness? But what's the real kicker is this last one. Notice the word long-suffering. That means that you can be around the most irritating people agitating people, aggravating people and still have a shouting fit. Some of you around them at Thanksgiving. I mean, really. And after they left, you said, thank God, we ain't got to do that again the next year. I mean, you know, let's be truthful about the deal. Some of you are married to them. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered why God lets you marry somebody that's the opposite of what you are? So you can drive each other to Jesus or crazy one. Let's be truthful about it. We let people rob us of our joy. We let circumstances rob us of our joy. You know why? Because you're not appropriating who you are and what you already have. I'm about finished. It's time for the invitation. Listen carefully to these words. How many of you have Jesus Christ living inside of you? By the Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus real to you every day. How many of you have him living inside of you? On a scale of one to ten, ten being the highest, how long-suffering is he? On a scale of one to ten, how patient is he? Then why don't you live by his life instead of yours? Then why don't you preach to yourself all the time about who you are and what you already have inside of you. Why don't you live in the reality of the fullness of God? A perceptive life, a pleasing life, a productive life, a progressive life, but a powerful life.